Thanks, thanks for the introduction. So I'm, I'm actually, I think we're going to have Sarah start, but I will say, it's, and we were talking about this this morning, which is that when Damien put us together, we were like, huh, we have pretty different vantage points. Um, uh, and, and then he was like, that's the idea. And then the, what we found is that we actually get to almost the exact same place from different vantage points. So I think what we're really excited is to discover where we have overlaps and if there are disagreements. So, um, so I think with that, but I thought it would be great to kind of maybe have you, since, since you've got the book, to talk a little bit about like, <laughs> which is, I was saying, is, is not a young adult book about vampires, though that would be a really good sale thing. But the rise, to talk a little about what you've been writing about and, sure. and we can start there. Sure, and I also wanted to say, well, first of all, thank you to Damien and Adam Erickson, everyone else who really has done so much to bring this conversation to life. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a real honor to be here, so thank you very much. Um, I also want to make sure you all know what Fred and I decided early on, which is we wanted to make sure this could be a conversation amongst all of us. So we'd like to open up to questions a little bit earlier than we might have ordinarily. So, so think so of that. because there's a lot of friends in the audience. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> and actually, yes. a lot of people who might know more about this topic than, than at least I do. So it's great. So. You know, I really almost, I think I know almost everyone in this audience. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. <laughs> um, so, so yes, to begin with the topic that it's rare to discuss the gift of failure and creativity. I guess I'd begin by talking about the book a little bit. So for a long time, almost two decades now, I've been curious about the origins of creative genius, what it actually takes to achieve something path-breaking, groundbreaking, um, new. And over time, just organically, because I wanted to understand how to live my own life, I would look at people's life stories and noticed oftentimes the very moment or crucible that gave them an uncommon gift was left out of the sort of Charlie Rose-like discussion, mm -hmm. right? right? So I noticed that Martin Luther King, when I looked at his papers at Sotheby's being archived, Martin Luther King Jr.'s papers showed that in seminary, he received C's twice in guess what class? Public yeah. speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, exactly twice. Well, at first it was a C plus, and then it went to a C. So in fact, he got worse <laughs> in different semesters. I wonder what that teacher thought when he became one of the most prodigious orators of our time. But I also was curious about what happened to him in that moment. All the other grades were A's and B's, you know. I was interested in that, and I thought of this as it occurred to me as I looked at other people's lives with similar moments. We know of J.K. Rowling speaking at Harvard's commencement years ago about how she said rock bottom became the solid foundation on which she built her rise. You can go on and on and find so many of these different stories. One of my favorite was looking at this RKO screen test from 1930 about uh, a dancer. And the screen test said, can't sing, can't act, balding, can dance a little. And that was in reference to Fred Astaire. <laughs> so I amassed all these stories that really helped me think of a creative life in a far more broad way that allowed me to look at all the different experiences we have as potential gifts, uh, even if they can seem adverse to other people. And I felt that I was depriving not just myself, but we were all depriving each other of the roadmaps that we needed to use to understand how to actually achieve something great. Yeah. And I guess that's, that's a question I had as I was reading the book, and it, it kind of popped out, is that in your perspective, and, it, and I think you do um, have a perspective on this, do geniuses fail differently mm -hmm. than, than we do, or do they define yeah. it differently, or how yeah. do they actually engage with it? I'm just curious yeah. from your perspective. Well, this is, I mean, the book is, you know, Atlas of Stories, I interviewed yeah. over 150 people, many historical figures, and I did find that there were different ways of processing failure, right? right? So much so that the word failure isn't what they often use. Right. 
often to discuss the experience. It's a learning experience, it's a trial, it's a setback, but sometimes never even called any of those things because it, be it becomes the only path they could have taken right. to achieve something great. One of my favorite stories, we were talking about this earlier, is that of the Nobel Prize winner, Andre Geim, right. and his partner, Konstantin Novoslav. They won the Nobel Prize in physics for the discovery of the first ever two-dimensional object on the Earth, graphene, which many of you might know of. It's replacing silicone, right? right? And it's, it has superhuman properties, you know, thinner than silk, stronger than steel, most right. conductive material ever found. But they found it in this practice they have where they allow themselves to fail periodically. You know, 10% of their time is allowing themselves to ask questions at other people's disciplines and sciences that those people are not daring to ask, and doing things that are outlandish that seems like it will be a failure, but in fact can become a, a kind of a possibility permitting experience. Yeah. They call them Friday night experiments. Yeah. In a Friday night experiment, they just decided to take scotch tape and start riffing off graphite with it and found this property in graphene. And they found this Nobel Prize winning discovery that everyone thought was so outlandish that it kept on getting rejected yeah. you know, from yeah. Nature and other journals. So just one example, Friday night experiments of how people allow themselves and permit themselves to do what others wouldn't dare. Yeah. I want to build on that because I think, uh, as Damien said, a, a lot of the work that I do is actually in, uh, I do a lot of work in government, a lot yeah. of work in large-scale <laughs> philanthropy, yeah. in the past done a lot of work in healthcare, and you know, those are contexts that when you talk about failure, you, people say, no, this is a place where we cannot fail. Right. Like, it's, like it's, right. it's, it's, it's not a possibility right. to fail. And so yeah. the reality is for us is that we yeah. often have to get yeah. our clients to a place where they say, no, you actually probably need to fail. And what yeah. I loved about the Friday Night Experiments is, I mean, it's, it's very specifically, they, they were actually setting aside a time yes. in their week where they were saying, this is actually a, most likely going to be a failure. We're yeah. actually going to yeah. be failing. So yeah. the goal, in a sense, what, was to fail. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that notion of kind of bracketing failure to a place to say, yes, we know. We don't want the government to fail. Yes, we know we don't want Mayo Clinic to fail or whatever those things are. But there are moments that we actually can kind of establish a kind of a nice perimeter yeah. around failure is actually really helpful. Absolutely. I mean, the Mayo Clinic has benefited from this, too. They totally. have their own Friday Night Experiment time. Yep. They created that Queasy Eagle Award. <laughs> and I mean, I love the term for it. It's like an idea that didn't quite make it. <laughs> kind of a failed flight of an idea. But before they initiated this trial, this 18-month period of of really honoring people's attempts yeah. at something that would then go on to win a patent. They had, it was around 40 different ideas for patents, and after this 18-month period, they had 246 ideas, yeah. many of which merited new patents. So yeah. the permissiveness, I mean, when totally. you take away the shame from the feelings that you have right. when you when you fail, you actually then can go on to achieve Yeah, I mean, it's, and they're great, I mean, I think that they're, we, we've worked with them quite a bit, I think they're one of the most innovative um, health organizations yeah. that I, that, I mean, really, exactly. I mean, you'd expect it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, yeah. same on the service side, they have a, Innovation lab that's actually focused on service innovations, right. and it's like, right. and it's a place where they, and, and again, you don't want to fail when you're in the doctor's uh, office, but you, but they yeah. kind of give permission to have a space where people do fail, which right. is really important. One thing that you talk about though, and I think it's actually important, is um, that failure is almost not the right word, and that it seems yeah. that a lot of people that you write about um, have been able to kind of look back and not call it failure anymore. And I'm yeah. curious about that a little bit. So. Yeah, no, I, you know, for years after deciding to write on this topic, I had a kind of a breakup with the word in mm -hmm. the sense I realized it wasn't a 
appropriate necessarily to describe the journey uh, that this dynamic um, was about. The book is really a biography of an idea that we don't really have a term for. Mm -hmm. It's We have it when we look at anything else in life, the idea, you know, that time in April when it's so cold, you just want it to be spring, and that one day you can kind of feel kind of thawing. That happens in us too, but we don't call right. that transition anything negative, right. you know? Right. This is a term I was trying to grapple towards, this transformational term that I couldn't really find. And I realized when I looked at the history of the word, why that was the case. Failure is a term that only came into the American lexicon in the 19th century as a term for bankruptcy. Yeah. You know, it meant a dead end. Right. And you actually didn't apply it to identity. It meant that what you did couldn't go further. Mm -hmm. um, you say that person is a failure, you meant their business went, went under. Mm -hmm. But it never conveyed anything about the human spirit or identity. Mm -hmm. And that only happened in the 20th century. But as we know, the spirit is so dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't come an end to an end until we do, yeah. right? So that's why the term feels off. The book really, I realize, is more focused on the journey that any creative person is undertaking, whether or not they know it, which is not just to achieve a kind of success, which I see as a, a label that the world confers on you yeah, yeah, yeah. for hitting a benchmark, right. but really is looking at our lives as one of mastery. Yeah. You know? I, th th it's, one of my, it's one of the things that really popped out as I was reading the book. And, and so yeah. one of the things that, um, that Sarah writes about is that actually, in a sense, people who think about success, it's actually, it, I think it's an impediment to mastery, at least mm -hmm. the way that I interpret it, which is yeah, that it's yeah. like, if you yeah. feel like you've kind of succeeded, you're like, done, yeah. that's great. It's, and, and, um, and in fact, mastery takes work that's kind of happening constantly. I was just, this is totally weird. I was watching him. True Detective. I don't know if anyone's watching it on HBO, but but one of the characters who's really dark basically says, you know, in our life we only have time to learn one thing. Um, you know, it's like, and which I thought was actually really interesting because it is this notion that actually mastery is a lifetime work. Exactly. Um, success can exactly. happen any day. You know, right. it's like, but that doesn't mean you get to where you need to go. Yeah, so. and I, I do. You must deal with this a lot. The idea of guided mastery That's right. is a really key tenet for you. It is. It is. It's something that we're thinking about, and we're trying to think about it even more in increasingly. You know, it's a, it's a it would be a mistake to think that, and we're by no means geniuses, but we're creative. It's like right. that, that when we bring our people in, that they're all able to kind of leap to the kinds of conclusions that we actually often need to leap to. And yeah. so, um, and actually, it it takes a lot of intuition to get to those places. But intuition is something that you practice. Like it's only by mm -hmm. practicing over and over and over again that you can actually take. We find the creative leaps that you need to take. Um, mm -hmm. So it's often you sort of think, oh well, this is a these are really smart geniuses. Actually, they're people who are just working a lot, practicing their skills yeah. so they can get to mastery. So yeah. it's something that we think about quite a bit. So in your conversations about guided mastery, does the idea of learning from what you know I, I write about, the near win, does that come up? It, you know, it, 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 it does and it doesn't. And one of, one of the big differences, I think, in, what, in the way we think about failure and the way that you write is that we often, as a way to get to the notion of kind of accepting that we're going to kind of near win a lot, mm -hmm. um, we often put failure out there. So it's often like, it's like, let's put this in a room as a group and let's look at it and say, is the idea of failing not us? And, right. it, and I think that's something that's grown up a lot with our work with our clients where, honestly, um, Again, if you're in a government context and you fail, mm -hmm. you're you don't you're not there anymore. You know, it's like it's like right. if, you, if you're right. if you're a doctor right. and you fail, you're not there anymore. And right. so we've had to kind of look at ways to say, okay, well, how can we kind of uh, take the failure out of the individual and mm -hmm. kind of put it into a space that's separate? So it's a little different, I mm -hmm. think, than the way because I think the people you're writing about are embracing it as a piece of who they are in a sense. Yeah, and this is I think an important distinction to make. It's part of why Damien mentioned that we're coming from different places. Right. Being in the art world, you know, I used to curate and, and really look at people who are living and 
operating on a very internal landscape. Mm -hmm. You know, right. uh, they're oftentimes looking at that gap between where they are and where they want to go. You know, right. that gap that frustrated Paul Cezanne so much so that he didn't sign 90% of his paintings. Right. You know, because right. it didn't meet his goal. But yet, uh, those 90% of the paintings are what we celebrate. Mm -hmm. You know, and seen as a success. Or you, you look at so many different sort of icons who have that gap as part of their journey, and it's very internal because yeah. from the outside world's perspective, they're masters. Yeah, you know? that's right. But the work that you're doing at IDEO is in part dealing with the external landscape right. a bit differently. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and, I, and I think that's, that's a piece of it is that like a lot of our work is actually helping to guide people through the kinds of things that, that yeah. you have to go through as an individual and yeah. do it in a way that feels safe and engaged. Yeah. One thing that I should just note is that I think, I think Damien thought that we were like polar opposites. I actually have an art history undergraduate. I actually worked in the yeah. art world for years. So yeah. actually, in fact, we, we kind of tricked him a little bit. Like yeah. we, have, we have a lot more in common. <laughs> Sorry. I, like, I know, I'm trying. I'm trying not we to be it. like, yes, let's like, it's like, so it's like, but, but that will come up a little bit later. I think yeah. we'll, we'll want to talk about the arts yeah. and, and, the, and the role there. Yeah. One thing that's come up a couple times at the festival, and you and I discussed that we would talk about this. So, because I know that you were on Charlie Rose, and Charlie Rose asked this question, and then yeah. we did a, a panel yes two days ago, and uh, a question the audience came up around creativity, failure, and gender. Yeah. Like that actually, yeah. and the question was, um, do women and men act differently around around yeah. the notion of, of creativity, failure, and. I know you've been asked yeah. that, we've been asked that, and typically when that gets asked to us, we're like, oh, we don't know much <laughs> yeah. about that, like, uh, let's mm -hmm. talk offline, but we're like, let's talk up, yeah. up here about it, because yeah. I think it's a, great, it's a great topic. I'd love yeah. to hear your perspective, and I'll do a little bit of mine. Yeah, I remember when he asked that, I thought, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, you could see oh, it on your face. You were like, huh, like, <laughs> why that one? I yeah, know, exactly. I mean, I, you know, I'm on the board of the Burley School, an all-girls school. <laughs> I went there for 13 years. I thought, let me just give the diplomatic answer, but you know, you have to speak the truth, yeah. really, ultimately, yeah. and and what I said, I, I do believe. I think there are there are differences. Part of them have to do with the way that society has conditioned us to um, put our successes forward as yeah. a, as a woman, because it's been so long. Well, it's been so recently that we've been expected to be a success. Yeah. You know, so offering models for young women right. uh, of success is a lot of what I, I do want to do. So it's I'm more reluctant, maybe, to speak about failures right. in public. Right. Uh, and I think a lot of women are, and I do think men and women process failure differently. There's an interesting study that Poe Bronson and Ashley Merriman put in their book, Top Dog, that's looking at achievement. I see some nods in here. And it was really questioning why women don't run for political office as much as men, and, and what some of the reasons were to do with that, and it had to do with self-critique and, and women's constant uh, appraisal of themselves in terms of their performance, how they're doing in public, far in a way that's often different, yeah. uh, as studies have found, than with men. So, so there probably are some differences, which I do not go to in the book, which is why I was surprised Charlie asked. Yeah. I don't mention it at all. Um, it comes up one time, actually, but it's sort of tangential. But the other thing I, I just, I'd say is I couldn't find as many stories yeah. of women in for one. the book. And I think that's for an interesting reason. I, I speak about you know, Julie Moss and the triathlon. I speak about J.K. Rowling. I speak about Angela Duckworth, who's just done this pioneering work, Wanda MacArthur Ford, about the role of grit, the importance of grit yeah. in the achievement context. So there's some really central women, but there aren't as many anecdotal women, yeah. women whose kind of quotes just come in and out. And it's really in part because of the first reason I gave, I think. We haven't had the full lives of of women's stories told, yeah. really, as much as we've had you know, men's stories told. Yeah. So 
I'm sure there are examples of these iconic women that we know of who've had these crucibles, but they're still hidden in their biographies, probably kept in sort of the letters they wrote yeah. back and forth that we just don't know about. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, mean so I think that's definitely a piece of it. And I know Walter is writing a book on kind of inventing, and, uh, and one of the people yeah. he's writing about is uh, Ada Lovelace, who yes. actually uh, yes. kind of pioneered and, and, and yeah. led kind of our, our notion of the modern computer. And yet, you, I, who, who knows the name? I'm just curious, Ada Lovelace. I did this. Yeah, so I mean, I very, very, Ada, Ada Lovelace, Byron, by the way, she was related, I think she was like oh, the Lord sister. Is that right? It's a quarter, yeah, so it's like, Daughter. oh, what is it? Daughter of Lord Byron. Daughter, wow. so, so it's like, so that's, that's a especially interesting, wow. but and interesting wow. that we don't know her name and that we, we actually don't relate it to. So I think there is a, this yeah. notion of like, it's like being written out mm -hmm. of the history, because I mean, clearly yeah. there are that. I have a, the, I, the reason I want to talk about it is that one of the things that I've noticed, and it's a, it's a little bit tangential to us like failing as an individual, is that, in the work that we do in the public sector and social sector, I would say, uh, I don't know, and I have people from my idea, like it's like maybe 80% of the people who do that work are yeah. actually women. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, and what, I've, what I've found is there's a <laughs> tremendous, am I right? It's a whole row of women. A whole row of idea women. women. There. It's like actually, and yeah. I've found it, um, yeah. and, we, and we can talk about this maybe, like it's like I found a comfort with embracing that things will fail yes. um, in, mm -hmm. in, in them that's different yeah. than actually what I see in our, in our male designers. That actually oh, there's a, they're, they're, they're a little bit more huh. willing to go to the idea that an organization may break or, yeah. or may, and we were talking, yeah. I have a really funny experience hmm. where I'm on a board that's 50% um, women and 50% men. Right. Um, and, and granted the men are all like 80 and the women are all like 50 and it's like, it's like, but, um, and, and this organization may break and the women are like there. They're basically yeah. saying like, yeah. this, is, this, this can fail. Yeah. It's a possibility. And the men are like, no way. It's yeah. like, you know, it's been around for 80 years. How can it possibly fail? So I wonder if there's actually just more of a acceptance around it that allows us to do more creative things in, in that space. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I love that. You're making me think of something I hadn't before, which is um, something my editor at Simon & Schuster said. Uh, and he said, you know, if I didn't know you, and we kind of hid your name, you might be able to tell the woman wrote this, mm. actually. Interesting. And in the space of big idea books, which are oftentimes written by men, right. uh, it was an interesting point. But I thought about why. And I think in large part, you know, as I look at this topic of creativity and failure, the analog is really um, development, sort right. of human development, right. and what it takes to nurture that. You know, so there is something about um, I don't know womanhood that mm -hmm. for me, and understanding it more fully, that for, was required actually mm -hmm. to write about this topic because you do have to embrace failure at all stages with right. it. You know, right. Right. it's it's just sort of natural to human development. You don't kind of yell at a child who falls. You know, right. <laughs> as they're trying to learn, you you understand what's about to come next, right. and I think part of it is just trying to see life that way. Yeah, you know? no, it's a, it's a it's a really interesting point, and one that I, I, I hopefully we can talk about a little bit as a as a group as well. Absolutely. One yeah. thing that I know, and this is again, this is where. Um, uh, we tricked you, Damien, but it's like, so we both come from art background. Um, <laughs> it's like my, my background is just, uh, when I graduated from college, I did most of my work was actually focusing to, on work with artists who were primarily focusing on gender identity. Right. Um, and that was a moment in the 90s where um, that was a really specific and uh, uh, important topic, yeah. partially because of AIDS. So there was, mm -hmm. there was ACT UP and then um, there, were, there were a lot of... Um, 
actually women Native American artists who are actually really thinking about new ways of portraying themselves in the art world. And that's where most of my work went. And mm -hmm. I left, and I left about five years after because I felt like I suddenly, the politiza politicization of the art world had kind of disappeared. Right. Suddenly it was like, um, and so I'd love, I know you have some perspectives on art yeah. and politics and movement making, and I'd love yeah. to hear a little bit about that. Maybe we can talk about that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, our point of entry to the art world is really identical. Right. And um, I came into the arts because I understood it as a place of catalytic change right. for similar reasons, many of which have sort of evaporated. Yeah. Um, but as I, as I wrote about what it really takes to overcome massive societal failures, sometimes so entrenched that you don't know how you can move past them when it comes to social justice. Right. Um, I noticed that there were some moments that could have only happened because of the power of the arts that we should be honoring more. You know, so in part, it's just to say that I, the work I do in the arts isn't simply to honor individual genius and the, and the talent that comes from someone's studio. It's really to make sure that we're paying attention to how art impacts us. Yeah. You know? right. And Frederick Douglass spoke about this uh, early on in our country's history during the Civil War. He gave a speech that was, one could argue, a kind of a failed speech mm -hmm. at first, because no one expected what he would say in 1861 when he was speaking in Boston's Tremont Temple about what he thought it would take to mend America. And his argument was that it could be something as small as a picture. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the age of the daguerreotype, of course. And as he called it so beautifully, a thought picture, mm -hmm. you know, that it creates in the mind that can get you to see the world differently enough to work towards justice, yeah. you know. And if you look at a lot of pictures from the you know, 1860s, you look at daguerreotypes, they're often of people looking at daguerreotypes. Have you ever noticed that? And with this kind of reverie, this sort of gaze, this faraway gaze, because they were doing exactly what Douglas was describing. He wasn't inventing this phenomenon. He was seeing it. So we have a little, a little Douglas shot. But, um, but Douglas inaugurated an idea that we are still living through and living out. And mm. I think it has to do with the way the arts, you know, what brought you in, what brought me in, does impact change. I guess a brief story I would tell that makes me think of how prescient his argument is, has to do with what it took for one of the lawyers for Brown versus Board of Education yep. to, to come to that case. So he, this young Charles Black Jr. was 16, thought he was just gonna go to this dance in Austin, Texas. and. He wanted to meet some girls, basically, he said, you know. And he found himself just transfixed by this trumpet player who, as he really knew in that moment, was sounding out all these notes and laments and sonnets that were just genius, as he understood it. But it was 1931, mm -hmm. and there was segregation. But because of Louis Armstrong, as it turned out, genius, mm -hmm. and he didn't know the trumpet player at the time, uh, he knew that segregation must be wrong. Mm -hmm. And that was the moment he said he began walking towards Brown versus Board of Education. Yeah. It's because of that here, right? We have, like, we have a Louis Armstrong image. Yeah. yeah. You know, that, that's a Lizette Modell uh, photograph. And I've been thinking about these different moments. It's not only with justice, with kind of social justice, it's also with the environmental movement. Right. That image from the Apollo 8, you know, Earthrise image that got us to see in a way that rational argument couldn't. Yeah. Right? So, so we you, were in an environment. Do you think it's happening now? I mean, are you I seeing it know. as much? I mean, I'm just, I'm curious. I mean, frankly, um, I'm seeing it as often. I don't know that we can move past this kind of technology of the soul. Right. You know, right. In, this, in the sense of how we are impacted by things. But I'm not seeing a platform given to it as much. That's right. Yeah, I mean, so, and it is, is interesting. Yeah, yeah, and it's, I mean, and, and I look at it because I, I think, you know, 
when I was started this work, it was in the, in the 90s when, yeah. I was, when I was working in the kind of the, yeah. the arts world. And it, it was a less crowded world, frankly, right? right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's like true. There, there, there were a lot less images. That's there right. were a lot less kind of like yeah. uh, video. There was, I mean, it's like, and, and yeah, I think yeah, that yeah. as we, we have a kind of much more crowded world yeah. where I think that what I wonder mm -hmm. is, does this image hold as much weight exactly. um, yeah. in a world where everything is available to us yeah. now that it, as than it did even 10 years yeah. ago? 15, and so it's, I think it's a really interesting mm -hmm. kind of thing for us to think about how to kind of re- weight those things. That's right. I mean, there's so much work being done on a field that I actually don't do a lot of work in, which is neuroaesthetics, right. because of this curiosity and worry um, about how the glut of images that we have can diminish the power of any one to yeah. impact us, that sort of shortened attention, right. things like that. could be interesting for another conversation. It, it could. Yeah. I mean, and, and the other way to think about it also is, I mean, I know that, for instance, we, uh, we've spoken a lot to people who worked with Occupy, for instance. Uh -huh. And if you talk to people at Occupy, they believe that it was a creative act. I mean, it mm -hmm. was, it was, I mean, it, it really was for them a, a manifestation of a kind of a creative vision. And so yeah. I wonder if it's also an evolution of the ways that we think of yeah. creative genius to think about how, to, how that moves things forward. It must be Part of the work that you do, I noticed this term, not deja vu, but vujade, right? Yeah. Is yeah. something that you, you work towards an idea, getting people to see their world, something familiar, differently. Yeah. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. you know, it's funny because actually the, there's a really simple thing, which is that um, as we work with organizations, and this kind of goes back to one of the foundations that we have around kind of creativity and the work of creativity, we, um, we believe that as you get more involved in something, more engaged with it, work with it more, you actually often see it less. Um, and so, um, and a lot of our work is to go in deep and either understand the people that you're serving, and whether it's American citizens or whether it's a, you know, the consumer of a product, whatever yeah. those things are, and then bring that back to the client and kind of re-remind them, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. um, of, who they're, of who they're serving. And yeah. what's interesting, and it's funny, because a lot of our clients, like especially mm -hmm. if you're working with government or a foundation, right. um, uh, they're looking at data and stats as a way to kind of make decisions. Um, what we find when we come back with the things that we've seen in the field, like kind of like really, is like that um, you actually feel it. You mm. feel it's right. Um, mm -hmm. And I know there's people mm -hmm. that we've worked with uh, in mm -hmm. the room, and it's like, it's not something you, it's, it's kind of like, I don't know, Jackie, I'm looking at you, but it's like, you kind of just, yeah, I, maybe, and if you're like, like disagree, let me know. But it's like, but it, you, you, sort of, you sort of feel the rightness in it, mm. um, because it feels like it's kind of connected you back to something that, that you knew maybe all along, but had yeah. kind of forgotten. Uh -huh. um, and I, we actually think that's the spark of creative thinking, frankly, mm -hmm. that it's like kind of to re-remember the humanness in yeah. things, and yeah. so it's, a, it's an important piece of it. How much do you work? At, well, I'm thinking about this yeah. this Einstein image actually. This is an image of his an office yeah. the day that he died, right, yeah. 1955, and I was thinking about the messiness in it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, are we okay on time? Are we okay? We're yeah, we're fine. Okay, good. Oh, oh, cool. oh, good. Oh, okay. wow. Oh, great. <laughs> oh, yeah, we get a lot done in our conversations. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and the productive sort of disorder that, that it shows. I'm wondering about what learning you found or thinking you've done yeah, about you, you creative should spaces. Come, you should come to our offices. Um, I, I think... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't mean in that. Yeah, mean but I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's... I mean, there's a couple things around what we've seen, and I think it relates to the notion of, of creative process for us, which is that... Um, uh, our whole process feels a little bit like productive disorder in this in the sense that um, that you know if you imagine as you're doing work and I think this is actually true with the people that you write about mm. you sort of imagine this kind of line where it's like each day you're getting better and better and better and better and then you're smarter and then you kind of get to your solution so right. you're kind of working your way towards a solution right. we actually don't find that we right. find that actually our work is more like 
whoa, it's really messy, it's really bad, it's yeah. like really weird. And then suddenly at the very end, there's this kind of like breakthrough. And yeah. I think that's a mess, you know, yeah. it's like, it's a, and, it's, and it's a very uncomfortable mess. It's, yeah. a, it's sometimes uncomfortable for us. It's definitely mm -hmm. uncomfortable for the, the people we work mm -hmm. with. Um, but it's actually, it's critical. I mean, yeah. I think it's like to, to, to live in a place where you can kind of fluidly make connections across the things that you're engaging with yeah. to then sort of get to something that's the right idea. So yeah, I think that, um, and then this looks neat, by the way, compared to a lot <laughs> <Sure>. of our, <laughs> I love it. our project I love it. <laughs> well, like, but it just, it's a reminder of the, uh, the sort of timeless journey that this is all a part of. I love right. the way that chair is angled to totally. kind of show that he thought he was coming back, right? But this could be anyone's office right. that's doing something great. I know? think that's right, right. yeah. And it's, I mean, it, it is funny. It's like, it's like you find that our whole office is like that only just like, it's like you find stacks of stuff that are like, that are, that are around that are, that's right. kind of, kind of amazing. Yeah, so. yeah. So t uh, you're, you're, you're writing another book. Yeah. Um, can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the second book is uh, now, it's due very soon. I'm kind of three-fourths done with it. And the idea that Douglas spoke about during the Civil War inspired it. Yeah. Um, I speak about that in The Rise, too. But this book, which is under contract with Harvard University Press, deals with it in a more academic way, in a right. more probing way. I wanted to take Douglas at his, at his word and understand what pictures he would elect to perform the work that he spent, you know, four different speeches writing, was right. talking about. He didn't just give up after that 1861 speech. He gave it three other times. And it seemed to me that he would probably have elected pictures that perform work that get us to see race very differently. Right. You know, it was a lot of his work in that speech was um, using the way in which he was honoring the arts to argue for seeing the full humanity right. of African Americans. That was the way the Democratic Party at the time was mm -hmm. trying to drive a wedge between suffrage and, and humanity and African Americans by saying that they didn't appreciate pictures. Right. Didn't, it's very odd. But I, I think that there's work that pictures can do, those taken by Matthew Brady and others, that galvanize people's interest and attention in the fictions underlying right. the foundations of race. Right. So the, the work of that book is to be able to understand it through the sort of set that I've kind of elected to look at through Douglas's lens, mm -hmm. ultimately. That's right. And it's not work that, um, I mean, getting back to our point about what platforms we're giving mm -hmm. to political art, you right. know, that I can imagine doing in the round as a curator right, right now. Right. So it's work that I'm really doing on the page in, in the book. Right. But it, yeah. That's interesting because uh, we, we were having a conversation about the National Endowment for the Arts mm -hmm. earlier, and, and, mm -hmm. and again, I think we were, uh, I think we're slightly different ages, but we grew up yeah. in an age of politicization in the arts yeah. in, in an interesting, pretty interesting moment. Yeah. One of the things that's always striking to me is that if you look at like the numbers, like you know, Kickstarter funds more arts than National Endowment, the National yeah. Endowment for the yeah. Arts. Um, yeah, just uh, Kickstarter is yeah. making. 1.2 million dollars a day um, for, for that. It's like they have on average, I think, 50,000 50, uh, unique hits to their site. Um, so, and, um, and so, I mean, so I'm yeah. curious, like, is like, does that still apply? I mean, is that, mm. is that I mean, is that, is, that, is, is it an art platform? I, right. I, we were both talking to Sundance and, you know, yeah. what's interesting is that yeah. Kickstarter's launched more movies <laughs> over the time than Sundance right. has in, in 22 Is years, right? you know, it's like, wow. it's like in the time. So I'm just, how, how do we look at platforms like that? I'm curious. Well, or have you thought about that? I, mean, yeah. I haven't thought of it, but it's interesting to think about it in public. Think about it. No, yeah. no, no, I like it. I, I mean, because Kickstarter, though, it's very different from what any, any sort of institution that has a space right. actually can do. I right. think what, what can't be lost is what can actually happen to you through interaction, through human totally interaction, right? right? This is what Douglas was talking about. This is what I think you know, brings us to a 
conversation like this and not just watch it on a screen. There are things that happen in us, yeah. you know, that yeah. you really can't bypass no matter how many people you can crowdsource to get behind something. That's right. So to be frank, I, even though that, that discrepancy might be there between Sundance and Kickstarter, the safe haven that Bob Redford created, the Sundance, totally. I think is, is sort of um, irreplaceable. Yeah. You know? Well, and, and, and interestingly, what he's, he's also, a lot of the work they're doing right now is really focusing on making sure that they're including voices that wouldn't be included exactly. otherwise. Exactly. Um, that, I mean, that actually you might not get at a, on a, if you had a Kickstarter-based yeah. uh, um, platform. So yeah. It's, yeah. it's a lot about that, I think. Absolutely. But no, I do think it, it is important to get these new streams of support mm -hmm. right, for the arts. Because we are, I think, changing in terms of what we will support, what shows we'll get kind of purchase. Right you know, and that's be able right. to travel and go around. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I think that's really interesting. Um, yeah. I'm going to ask you one last question, and then we'll, we'll open up, yeah. which is, um, uh, so you write about your grandfather, um, I, uh, I, yeah. I believe, right? Shadrach, is that right? Which that's is like right. the most awesome name. Okay? I think we all agree. I it's like, it. it's I a, um, uh, And um, he was a janitor, but he was a um, musician and an artist. And mm -hmm. so I'm curious, like, it's mm -hmm. like as you do the work you're doing now, mm -hmm. um, to reflect on what he and I don't know if yeah. he's alive or... No, he passed. I'm sorry. What he would have thought about the work you're doing, I'm just curious. It, it, would he be related to? I'm just yeah. interested. No, uh, thanks for the question. I think he'd be, he'd be moved, I think. Um, but I felt like he knew it, uh -huh. that it would happen. Uh, when he passed, I was painting, actually. Uh -huh. I think he thought that's where I would go. When I went to Harvard as an undergrad, I was painting, actually. And, but because of him, my, my grandfather was someone who was expelled in high school for asking where African Americans were in history books. And the answer that he was given, which is that, oh, you've done nothing to merit inclusion, wasn't sufficient for him. You know, he knew that, that was wrong. And so he kept on asking, and eventually he was expelled. And so he decided to put in a painting uh, the images that he was hoping to see in those history books. So hmm. sort of he was a kind of a Kehende Wiley before Kehende Wiley to a certain hmm. extent. And I, as a you know, young girl, um, sort of single digits, I heard that about my grandfather and looked at these paintings that he was making and thought to myself, wouldn't it be a shame to not know his process, to not know how he got arrived at this decision to make these paintings. Mm -hmm. And that's in part what got me to switch from making work to understanding the history and the process of how someone came to make their work. Mm -hmm. So that's so actually really proud, helpful to me. So, that, so yeah. then the process that you described, I mean, do you believe that was uh, the same process that your grandfather uh, kind of worked with? I mean, is it the, the kind of failure and discovery and mastery? and? I think so. I mean, he yeah. used the gift of uh, what is an out-and-out, out, I guess, failure to have been expelled to have catalyzed a new yeah, right. experience, for sure. Um, but he also saw work as doing kind of soul-sustaining work mm -hmm. for him as an individual, but also political work. You know, he has this beautiful, in Philadelphia, this stained-glass window sort of um, creation of all of us, all of humanity, being shown kind of in this sort of chorus of angels, all these different hues and colors. Mm. It's gorgeous. Um, I was actually very sad when the New York Times put it down as, as a janitor and didn't mention anything else, mm. you know, because yeah, I yeah. thought, yes, that is what he did to support my family, but this, is, this was the it's, nourishing it's not, work that he did. It's not the identity that, that he, yeah. That's yeah, really for his life. So I think he would, would be proud, but it's in part the sort of hidden partnership behind so many different yeah. individuals, you know, these catalytic moments for so, us. I'm sure you sense. have one yeah. more. <laughs> <laughs> so I think what we'll do now is stop and open it up for questions. As yeah. I said, it's like there's people who are probably at least as ex expert in this in, in the audience. So anything, uh, a question, there's one back here. In much of anything, thank you both, Good very question. stimulating. Yeah. So 
there's no shortage of geniuses with stories of failures. You put up Einstein, Martin Luther King, Lincoln, but yet we seem to find that somehow very surprising, maybe reassuring in a sense. So with as much evidence that we have that every genius, every in fact successful person has failed, why do you think we have such a hard time imagining successful people or geniuses as human? And why do we imagine successful people to have had a linearly consistent, upward arcing, perpetual <laughs> experience? Why is that, why is all of this so surprising with as much evidence that we have that there are no exceptions to geniuses that have failed? Yeah. Wow. We could spend a whole panel on that. <laughs> One question alone. We have 20 minutes. But, yeah, so, we yeah. have <laughs> enough time. But, you know, I, I actually don't know how, um, how much I agree anymore that it is very surprising to us. I think the reason why people are interested in the topic is because on some gut level we do know that these transformations do come from unusual places to a certain extent. Winston Churchill said, success is the ability to go from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm, right? <laughs> I once said that actually to Al Gore in this conversation we had at this annual conference in public, and he said, yeah, I've heard that. We were talking about his near win, the presidency. And he said, I heard that, but you know, Churchill later was sort of, someone parroted his own quote back to him, and he said, yeah, but success is a damn good disguise. <laughs> and that's really it. I think we're, we're curious because we are looking at that disguise of achievement in that moment. Um, but oftentimes I think the reason why we're so excited by it is because it honors the full range of what it takes to actually build a life. You know? The more we show people's full stories, the more we show these, the true kind of rises that people have had, I think the less surprising it will be to those who still are. And that's really why I wrote it. Yeah, and I think I think it's interesting because I think we probably need more models and more ways to tell those stories. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we've mm -hmm. we've we've done a lot of work with actually college age students actually looking at the way they're thinking about education, mm -hmm. and um, and it's amazing how persistent the myth of sudden success is. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like that, or or, yeah. or the notion that this person made just all smart decisions, and so mm -hmm. you know, it's, and, and 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 interesting if you're like at 18, you often don't think like I want to be, um, you know. Uh, a big businessman, you're like, I want to be Steve Jobs. You know, it's like it's like you're, you're identifying with an individual, and and the myth around that is 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 quite clear. I mean, it's mm -hmm. one of the things we see around. There's a huge the new uh, American dream myth is I'm going to do a startup, right? I mean, it's like if you talk right. if you talk to an 18 year old, they're basically like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to build a startup, probably in my dorm room, and I'm going to become a billionaire. You know, like that's yeah. that's what it is. And so and what what's the statistic? Like 99% of startups fail, right? So it's like, but but the problem is that it's like we we imagine we imagine into success yeah. um, in ways that I think are um, that kind of uh, obliviate failure. And and I think mm -hmm. the work you're doing, and I think actually the work that we need to be doing in many 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 different forms is basically pull forward the kind of rockiness and kind of uh, um, mixedness of our lives. Mm -hmm. Really quick anecdotal uh, thing: when when we were looking at who, who people hire when people come out of college. Um, one of the, a lot of the people that we actually talk to um, um, said that they often will look at resumes and what they want to see, in addition to all the great work they've done at school or whatever, is um, have they been a waiter, 
have they been a waitress? Have they been? It's like have they been? Have they done something in the service industry? Mm -hmm. Someplace where you probably mm -hmm. are going to feel humiliated. You probably yeah. had to have been, had yeah. to fail in yeah. some way. You've probably had to serve people in, in deep ways. And that was really interesting to me. The notion that actually, as you're looking at a resume, you're basically saying, "Great, great, great, great," but I want to see that there's something where. You know, they had to really work and and probably fail in that way. And mm -hmm. I think it's an interesting insight. Mm -hmm. Hi. Um, thanks, guys. It was great. And I know you both um, pretty well. I know you very well. Um, but it was a fascinating discussion. Um, so I have two questions. First, on the individual level, um, I mean, people depending on, let's just put it in an income bracket, uh -huh. have the ability to fail at different levels. Yeah. Um, and so I think many of the people that we think about, we think about these young right. kids who want to build right. startups, great. Mm -hmm. That's great, but mm -hmm. like, what is the floor there? It's a very That's different right. than the floor yeah. of someone else. So I'm just curious if you can speak about that at an sure. individual level. Yeah. And then at an institutional level, so I work a lot in development, public health, I kind of get a bit uncomfortable sometimes when we talk about failure and experiment in many of these markets. and. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but how do you, we've done a lot of experiments and a lot of failures, and we've been yeah. a lot of villages in Africa where we've seen failed mm -hmm. experiments. Mm -hmm. um, and so how do you, and I know IDEO has a great approach to this, but how do you think about how you fail and, and who is really owning that and who's taking the yeah. responsibility for what that, the impacts that that could have that That's has cool. had a pretty bad one? Sure. You know, my, my answer, and Blair, thank you for the great question. I mean, of course, every question is really wonderful, but this gets at it, something we didn't really address, right. which is wonderful. Uh, might preempt sort of this question about individuals a little bit because the anecdote I might give. One of the most instructive uh, kind of experiences I had in writing the book was talking to Engineers Without Borders, this NGO in Canada. They do work in Sub-Saharan Africa almost exclusively. And they have published, instead of an annual report, this, com this organization publishes failure reports. They wanted to disclose all their failures uh, in their partnered projects. They were working with different organizations on the ground. And these are kind of right out of college, engineers, younger people. What I was interested in was their transparency about being called out for deeming a project a failure that another person they worked with uh, in a different country in Africa didn't want labeled that way, you know, weren't comfortable with. And they had to, in that moment, see that, you know, calling something the gift of seeing a gift in failure can be a luxury, right, that you can only enjoy if you are secure enough to a certain extent, maybe financially, mm -hmm. you know, just in terms of life experience. And that, that's, I think, important to acknowledge. Failure, um, seeing the gift of it, isn't as easy, you know, depending on the range of experiences, you know, that we have in life. But, and so that's why yeah. I think it relates to institutions. You have to be careful with using this word uh, Freely, I think it doesn't always work in all contexts. I think we're in a really privileged space to be able to look at anything in life as, as a failure and sort of move on from that. So if I were to kind of band the 150 individuals that I was interviewing, all these different inventors and artists and entrepreneurs, they, they all have, I think, afforded themselves because of the cushion of success, the ability to, to pivot and see, see their life differently and to not mind the critique that might come from outsiders for doing something that might fail, yeah. do you know, um, because they have a certain level of comfort. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, I think that there's there's sort of two things in, in your question, Blair, that I, I guess I'd want to call out. One is, I think, um, 
greater risk to not acknowledge failure, right? So it's like, I mean, I mean, so there's a bunch of organizations that are failing constantly and just not acknowledging it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think that's way riskier yeah. than actually calling it out. And, and one of the things I'm seeing, specifically in the nonprofit space, which is pretty interesting right now, is that um, I think emergent new nonprofits are picking an issue. They're taking something uh, like uh, childhood learning or, their, or homelessness or whatever that is. Um, and, and they're kind of, they're building portfolios, recognizing that um, they're going to have to try a whole bunch of different things to kind of see if they're getting to the solution. So they don't, it's not just this, it's not just this, it's not just this. And the idea is that some of those things are probably going to go away over time because they actually fail and some of the things are not. So I think, so I guess the first point is that I think, especially in this space, we have to get good at saying it, are these things uh, uh, failure. And again, Let's reframe the word if we need to. I think mm -hmm. that, that's a piece of it. I guess the other side of it is that um, the way that we look at it from a process perspective is better small failures fast than big failures later. And that's like, I mean, that's pretty much where we are yeah. on everything. It's mm -hmm. like, so, so we'd rather, and you know, you, know, you know Jocelyn quite well, it's like we'd rather fail yeah. in situ once in over an hour in a village than actually have spent a year getting something into space that actually fails um, you know, for, forever. You know, and then everyone's too embarrassed to say it's failing. So, it's like, so I, I think that the, kind of the really critical point is like, let's try something, but let's try it small. One of the examples that, um, uh, that Sarah uses in her book is actually, also, by the way, this is the other thing. Every example of series is in her book, I use constantly too. So I was just like, uh, it's just like, it's like, it so weird. Yeah, it's it's like, but it's like, um, but um, is, is Anton Makis, yeah. like the, um, yeah. the mayor of Bogota, you know, who is famous for having put um, my, and, and people know me, know I tell the story all the time, putting mimes on street corners as a way to kind of like uh, halt traffic fatalities because people really hated being humiliated, you know, on, on, um, in, in public so they would actually act better. It's like really brave, um, could have failed, Pretty small failure, you know, if, if it happens, mm -hmm. but actually the, the effects were actually pretty radically, um, pretty radical changes. So I guess we would say um, fail, but do it kind of small first um, and build towards it. And then, it, and let's get to a place where we can acknowledge it in the right way, you know, in a way that feels like it's, it's, it's building. I said this yesterday. Um, I have never worked with an organization that says, um, hey, we, we love to fail or we can fail. Like it's like, you know, mm -hmm. if, if you're, if you're in, in healthcare, you're basically saying, no way we can, we can fail. If you're in government, like, no way. Um, but um, it's true. And so they're like, oh, private sector, that's easy. I've never worked with a private sector company that's like, we, we, we can fail. You know, it's like, so it's just, mm -hmm. it, universally, it's a hard thing for us to grapple with. I can just add one thing quickly. I think the one area where we can do more in terms of looking at the gift of failure is in pedagogy and education. Mm -hmm. I think that's really. But I, I know we have five minutes. I know we have a few more questions. I just wanted to make that point. Oh, can I, uh, I think that's sure. such okay, a we, great I'd point. Because yeah. I, I think that's right. I think um, it, it, it's, we, we probably have to get good early at thinking about actually how we can constructively yeah. teach the idea of failure. And I think it's yeah. a little bit about teaching courage, right? Because right. it's like you can't, it is. you can't get there if you can't do that. Yeah. One of my favorite uh, excuse me, studies about this is Laura Schultz work from MIT in this journal Cognition, she published a study about how four-year-olds were engaging with this toy. And it, it speaks volumes about just learning in general. One group was given this toy through play mm -hmm. and essentially permitted to do anything with it. Nothing was a failure, yeah. right? The other group was given it through really direct instruction. Right. And at the end of the 15-minute session, the group that was given the toy with play had discovered things about it that the other group never found That's out. Interesting. Never. Yeah. And so it's really being able to not um, kind of the lower the bar towards finding to achievement allows for, it requires, I think, incorporating and taking away kind of failure from the experience. I, so, yeah, and I, I said we've been doing a lot of work in higher education, and interestingly, when you go out and talk to employers, like, mm -hmm. they're like, they're like, we want someone who embraces failure. Like, it's like something they ask for all the time. However, mm -hmm. it's a 
highly unaspirational thing to be engaging with when you're in college, right? <laughs> right exactly. So, it's like, exactly. so actually, it's, I mean, to the point, and I think it goes to it, it was like the way we've reframed it, at least for this university, was like um, teach courage, which right. is actually like yeah. it's like, you know, teach a way to kind of get um, something out there, recognizing that if you're, yeah. you're brave, you're going to put things out that will fail by nature. Right. Um, and and I, so I wonder, yeah. again, how we could be yeah, reframing that. around that. Yeah, that's why I think some... Some high schools are looking at not having grades for a certain semester, like in the ninth grade. I've seen a couple of high schools consider this model. Right. I think Reed, Reed has this, which is where you went, right? I, I didn't even know I had, I had grades until I graduated and applied to graduate That's school. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah that, was a, that was a moment. Um, sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we have many more questions. Uh, there's questions in the back. Maybe uh, the gentleman from Texas, right? It's like yeah. uh, I thought your discussion about the the discussion about the National Endowment for the Arts and Kickstarter, mm -hmm. how much more successful Kickstarter has been, does this mean that the National Endowment for the Arts has failed? Or what should the role of the National Endowment for the Arts be in our society moving forward? Since the last election, there's no director of the National Endowment for the Arts. There's no director for the National Endowment for the Humanities. What does this mean, and what should we do? So I'll throw a quick thing, and then actually I really think Sarah is well, well poised to, to, to maybe talk about this, but I, you know, I think it's, a, it's an example where, and again, it's, it's historically, as I look back at National Endowment the Arts, where um, we've moved from the notion of risk-taking organizations, you know, and, I, and I, I think it's actually become, I, I would say, increasingly risk-adverse um, over the years, because there was a, s a single moment where they got pretty roundly slapped for being kind of fairly risky, I think, in the way, in the way they fund. Um, but actually, to be honest, it, it would kill me to think that, that it would go away because it actually has a role that's really different than Kickstarter. Because, I mean, Kickstarter is like, I love this, I love this, you know, I love this, I love this. And it's like, and it's just kind of this, where it was like, we need something that's kind of starting a central dialogue around it um, that, that actually is moving us forward. I'd be really curious to hear your perspective. Well, I'm more curious to hear Kate Levin's perspective or, <laughs> or Lisa Phillips' perspective. There's so many great uh, arts leaders in this audience. But, you know, your question is making me think very differently about this my answer really is that I'm not so sure that as a nation we've ever set ourselves up for an organization, federal organization, to support the arts the way that we should have. You know? So I don't think that the question is really is it is a success or is it a failure. It's are we um, capacious enough in how we understand the arts to function in our society as we should be you know, as a country. We're a very young country, and I think that's where we're the most adolescent. Perhaps in our understanding of the arts. It's interesting. One of the, one of the best panels I saw. I don't know if anyone else saw was that there was a panel on cities that had two mayors and a gentleman from Brookings, and it's like, and there was, and the the, the, the general premise was federal really will go away at some point, and you, and and you had the mayor saying that, so of course they're going to say that. But it's like, but then you had the Brookings guy saying, no, no, they're right. It's it's really going to go away. So yeah. it is funny. It's like, what's the right locus for yeah. this kind of discussion? I think yeah. is an interesting question. Yeah. Other few others. Hi. Um, I'm curious how, I think related to that last question, how you see um, this issue around failure playing out in US politics. Um, it seems like a very risk averse area of our country right now. And if you were able to kind of consult US Congress, is there anything that you would kind of, how would you change the structure in order to make it fit better with um, the issues around risk and failure that you're talking about? Yeah, well, one of the stops on the book tour was to the uh, National Constitution Center. I was surprised they wanted me to speak with Jeff Rosen, who I understand is also here, uh, uh, about failure. And the question they had was how we can better frame our understanding about um, 
govern governing and the strength of certain bills by understanding the importance of failure <laughs> in their process, which I think is very interesting. But uh, the historical example I talk about is that of Samuel Morse, who invented the telegraph after 26 years of being a failed painter, right? And he converts the stretcher bars, the canvas, into the telegraph. Do we have it? Yeah. No. Oh, it's in there, but in any case. So let me just put this here so it doesn't distract you. <laughs> but Samuel Morse then had to spend another 20 years negotiating with Congress, dealing with all the different ways that we have perceptual failures and understanding what should be supported through a bill and what shouldn't at the time. Telegraphy or the telegraph, really, the, he was the first tech entrepreneur when you think about it. You know, it wasn't something that different congressmen thought they should support until he gave these very powerful demonstrations of what it could do. I, I actually, I'd be so interested in talking about the dynamic of um, sort of statecraft uh, with different congressmen and congresswomen. But going back to the question of gender, I think I'd be most interested and looking at the pipeline we're creating for leadership um, as it relates to people's willingness to put themselves forward despite potential failure um, to go on to lead this country perhaps in the future. When you look at some of our greatest leaders, I mean Abraham Lincoln probably being the most iconic of them, if they couldn't have endured the failure on the way to where they they were, I don't think we would be in the position, we wouldn't be sitting in this room, we yeah. wouldn't have any of the achievements we now do. So it takes some bravery, some courage. Yeah, and I, I think there's a, there's a piece of it, I guess, around this creativity question. Mm -hmm. There's two thoughts that I have around that, which is that I worry that it's a failure of empathy more than anything else. And, um, and we were just doing a session with a, a bunch of leaders at, a, at, a, at Rockefeller. And it was interesting, we did a whole thing around kind of social services in New York. And these are very top thinkers, and they basically were like, wouldn't it be great to take Congress and have them spend a day um, in, a, in a service center and see what it's really like? And, 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 and their point was, we've forgotten to empathize with the people. That actually then kind of allows us to think about what's the kind of end goal. Um, yeah. someone, yeah. We did a, a thing on STEM education at some point, and I was in a forum where someone said, you know, part of the problem is that we don't have that many leaders who had STEM education, so they can't actually sympathize with the need for it. And mm -hmm. I think it's actually mm -hmm. interesting if we think about creativity mm -hmm. um, and, and the arts. Which is, we mm -hmm. certainly don't have that. You know, and, it's, and I do right. wonder what happens when we have our first kind of creatively educated um, leader and how that might shift and, and, and alter things. Well, th there is an interesting study about the amount of leadership people will take for gender equity if, depending on how many daughters they have. That's of course. It's like the single shift, really, right? Exactly. I mean, we've seen the same thing with kind of a, obviously the, the, the rights for gays and lesbians like in the city, I mean, it's in, yeah. in, in, in the yeah. country. So it's, it's, it makes total sense. Mm -hmm. um, we, I, how, how many more minutes? I think we're... Okay, okay, so we have time for one more question. Um, okay. um, I have a question, and that is that I understand or I'm beginning to understand the role of failure in moving an idea forward. Um, but it, we live in a society that is risk averse. It's risk averse <coughs> in business, in education, in parenting, in the arts. And um, can you speak to that a bit? Sure. Well, as I see it, and the reason why failure isn't really the right word to describe the dynamic, is because a lot of, <laughs> a lot of what the journey is about is tricking ourselves out of being so risk averse so that we actually can have the breakthrough that we need. Whether or not that's tricking ourselves into letting ourselves fail because something is so playful, right? Like the sort of example I gave you of the, the four-year-olds, or um, whether it's so 
uh, frustrating <laughs> that you decide to persevere with something anyway. Maybe we didn't talk about the near win, but this yeah, is kind of a, right. there, it's just to say there are certain elements in us that do make it difficult, you know, to, maybe it's because we're, we're risk averse or whatever it is that get us, make it difficult to confront failure. But there are some dynamics that happen on the way that can get us um, to finally face it. And one of the most catalytic is the experience of the near win. When you look at Olympic athletes, and you, there's a study that I love out of Cornell that was looking at the difference between Olympic silver medalist and bronze medalist. And essentially the frustration that they found that silver medalists feel coming close to a goal as opposed to bronze gave silver medalists this focus on follow-up competition that bronze medalists didn't have. So they then went on to different achievements that they never would have yeah. ordinarily. And that's kind of an analogy for different ways, like the near win plays out in so many different um, science labs or artist studios, and that's a way that gets people sometimes to confront failure, whether or not they're you know, risk averse. Yeah. So I'm interested in the different models that we have that had nothing to do with the word failure, but that have everything to do with kind of getting us to overcome our own limitations um, because of the environment or the, the experiences that we go through. Yeah, and I, and I think you made the point earlier, it's like, uh, Failure may not be the right word if we want to, and I think that we need to think about potentially what the reframe is that yeah. allows us to take risks or yeah. kind of say something isn't working without it saying, you know, it failed. And I, and I think that's, I mean, I think that's a yeah. lot of what you're doing in, in the book, and I yeah. think it's a lot of the work that we need to be doing now. Um, mm -hmm. And so I guess with that, maybe we'll, we'll wrap up and say, because uh, there's zero minutes remaining, <laughs> and, 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 and thanks for failing, failing forward with us today. Yeah. We appreciate Thank it. It's like, okay. it's like, Thank you.